0: Welcome, everyone. So we're here at the final talk of our practice period on the Four Noble Truths. That went fast, at least from my point of view. Maybe for you it's dragged on and on and on, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Tonight we're going to talk about the rest of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, We've talked about the first two last week, the wisdom practices of right view and right thinking, and we are going to give the sort of um, quick view of the last six. Uh, There's no way that we can uh, do this justice in um, one evening. So what I'd like to do is to give you a kind of sense about them and invite you also to read Thich Nhat Hanh's book on this, the the chapters that we've been talking about in The Heart of the Buddhist Teaching, because he goes into them in more depth. And these will be recurring themes that we come back to again and again. But I just wanted to give you the sense of, of what the path is that leads us to liberation. Because we started talking about suffering, what suffering is, that's the first noble truth. The second, what is the path that leads us to that suffering? And the third is, what is liberation, that it's possible? And then this fourth noble truth is the path that leads us to liberation. Now, it's not surprising that the path that leads us to liberation is a huge part of our practice, so we can't hope to cover it um, in an eight-week period or in a single talk or in a single lifetime. So let's begin with the uh, first, the three... Aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path that comprise ethics. And that's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So begin with right speech. As I said last week about um, the first two on the path, right view and right thinking, all of these inter-are. It's hard to talk about one without really talking about all of them. And if you practice one, you practice all of them. So it should be no surprise that right speech is related to all of them, but particularly related to right thinking. Because the one way to think about our speaking is that it is our thinking made physical. What we end up saying, oftentimes, is what we have been holding in our minds. But it's also true that sometimes we speak without thinking at all. And maybe that's mostly what we do, that we just blurt things out. So we can actually learn a lot about our thinking by listening to our speech. Well, I, I learned this um, particularly uh, poignantly for myself by listening to my speech, and I realized that I very often, in my, throughout my history, have overstated things. I don't just feel this way. I feel strongly this way. I don't want that. I really want that. And, and I didn't know that until I started to listen to myself speak. So I, I observed that. I, I watched that and I watched it. And I f- finally, the insight came that uh, the way I grew up, uh, I had very powerful parents and powerful authority figures, and I didn't feel like I had a voice. So, as from the time I was a little kid, if I was going to make my voice heard, I had to overstate things, and, and I kept that habit. So it may have served me when I was three or four years old. It doesn't serve me so much now, but there's the habit, and, and so my speech was teaching me about my habits of mind. Um, the fourth mindfulness training, truthful and loving speech, is really related to right speech. I just want to read it to you. This is the fourth mindfulness training. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others. I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. That doesn't sound so hard, does it? <laughs> right speech should be really easy. Oh, if only. <clears throat> you know, this really, for me, uh, right speech has, has uh, been one of my primary Dharma gates uh, to walk through. I have found that practicing right speech is the key to healing my family. Uh, and so I, I, I really hold it close so this is an ongoing practice for me. I'm, I'm nowhere close to, um, to being the master of right speech, if that's possible. So there's, some, there's three guidelines I'd like to share for checking to see whether our speech is right speech or not. Three questions we can ask ourselves. Is it true? Is it timely? And is it necessary? So asking ourselves these three things before we speak can it help us speak with right speech? So is it true? Thich Han likes to ask of his students, are you sure? And then when we ask ourselves that question before we speak, a lot of what we think we need to say, we pause. Am I sure? Now the line in the fourth mindfulness training, I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain or to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure." So how many Facebook memes would we forward if we actually asked ourselves, is it true? And if we still do forward them, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I intentionally not practicing right speech? So if it passes the a true test, then you can, you can have the, is it timely test? Is now the right time to say this true thing? You know, if you have children and uh, they walk in the door from school and their room is a mess, well, maybe the best time to talk about that, even though it's true, is after they've had their snack. Um, you know If your spouse comes home from work and has had a tough day, even if you have something legitimately true to talk about, is this the right time? It's a, it's a, it's a practice of kindness. And it's also a practice of pragmatism. Does it work if I, if I say this now? So if it passes those two, is it true, is it timely, you can ask, is it necessary? Now another way to ask this question isn't just, is it necessary, is it kind? I tend to resonate with that. Will this change the situation? Will it help? Or will it just cause more suffering? So good luck with those three guidelines. See (laughs) see what happens. (laughs) Okay, on our quick tour, we next uh, careen over to Right Action. So this is the second of the ethical principles. So right action arises from right view and right thought and also right mindfulness. They All those inter-are. But our actions also influence those things too. Our actions influence our view, our thought, and our mindfulness. So they, they, they have a kind of a loop. You can think of right action as the physical expression of our practice. As our hearts get transformed, our actions get transformed. And as our actions get transformed, our heart gets transformed. The five mindfulness trainings are are really the basis for right action. The five mindfulness trainings are ethical guidelines. And action is about ethics, because ethics is about interacting out there somehow with another person or with society. So the five mindfulness trainings give us um, aspirations for how to interact with others, how to act. I found that when I first started practicing with the five mindfulness trainings, they felt a lot like restrictions. I can't kill my dinner anymore. I can't lie I can't steal. I can't misuse sexuality. I can't consume um, unwisely. Wow, did I really want to take that on? It seemed like, well, a lot of no, 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 can't, can't, can't. But what I found was, as I actually started to practice those things, I felt a great deal of freedom arise in me. Uh, It felt so wonderful to know that I was eating in such a way that was minimizing the suffering of animals. I can't eliminate it, but I can can minimize it. Uh, To see that speaking truthfully granted trust in my relationships with people that I didn't have before. And bit by bit, with all the different mindfulness trainings, I began to see these things not as restrictions, but as protections that, that made my life better that made my happiness stronger. <clears throat> so it's not unusual if, if you're thinking about right action to think about the five mindfulness trainings and, and wonder, can I really do that? Uh, because it's kind of an abstraction and it feels like a restriction at first. But, but my hope is that, that you'll try it and see for yourself whether those still feel like restrictions as you practice <clears throat> them instead of just think about them. Um, our actions speak very loudly. There's that that phrase, "Actions speak louder than words," and I and I think that's really true. Um, and when I think about Thich Nhat Han, I don't think about so much his words. I think about his actions. That's what's meant the most to me. Watching him move and seeing how. His actions are now being expressed in some of his students. And, I, and it's the same kind of power that I see in his students. Uh, it's, um, it's really wonderful and it's, it's so much more direct teaching than talking about something. Uh, he likes to make the distinction between image teaching and substance teaching. <coughs> image teaching is the words, substance teaching is the action. And we learn so much more from each other's substance teaching than we do from the image teaching. I also learned a lot about the power of right action in working with patients. So in the healthcare setting as a chaplain, I, I began to observe my body in in interaction with another person and what immense messages my body could send, whether I was intending it or not. So, for instance, and I walk into a room, how do I walk into the room? Do I walk into the room aggressively, like I own this place? You're here, you're here, I'm uh, I'm serving you? Or do I walk in and, and I just observe? I walk in gently. Do I stand over someone in a, in a hospital bed and look down at them, or do I take a seat next to them and put myself on their level? Uh, do I touch a person? That's very context-specific. You know, for some people, I'll have to read, um, read the situation, and maybe touch is threatening or inappropriate. But for other people, Maybe placing my hand on their hand, hugely healing for them, and, and for me too. The power, I really sunk in for me the power of, of right action. Uh, it's not a fixed thing. It responds to the it's a scenario we're in. So that's back to its tie to my, right mindfulness. We have to be aware to be able to practice right action. Okay, we're on to the third right livelihood, the third ethical element, the Eightfold Path. So we are very, very fortunate. All of us in this room can think of our livelihood in terms of its meaning, not in terms of just having to survive all of us have that luxury. We can choose how we earn our living because we aren't starving. We aren't without shelter. My wife works with a, a woman that uh, fled Venezuela, she and her husband, and become a very good friend of ours. So we've been watching really closely what it's like in Venezuela these days. And I don't know if you're watching... This in the news, but people are suffering greatly, and these are people that are a lot like us. You know, the people, the the friends that we have, middle class people that had the same kind of uh, privileges that we enjoy, some sort of solidity that we enjoy, and because of conditions in their country, that's gone, and they have inflation rates that are over a million percent now. You know, money. Tomorrow is not worth enough to go buy the groceries that you want. They have to do whatever they can to get food. You know, and we are so fortunate. We don't have that. So when we practice right livelihood, it's a compassion practice for ourselves and for the world that we get to do this. We get to choose And because we get to choose, it's our responsibility to choose wisely. So traditionally, right livelihood is earning a living in a way that is in harmony with the five mindfulness trainings. Earning a living that doesn't cause us to have to kill or steal or lie or abuse people. Um, So on the one level, that sounds really cut and dried. Like, for instance, I, I know that I would not take a job in a slaughterhouse. It's, it, um, because of my ability to choose, that's what, I would, that's what I would choose not to do. Because it involves killing. But, on a deeper level, you know, it's pretty hard to find any sort of right livelihood that isn't gray in some way or another. So, for instance, my friends who are physicians, um, we have a death with dignity law in Washington (coughs) where a person who meets these strict criteria can have a prescription written for them for a drug to end their life because they are in the process of dying. And uh, so from a right livelihood point of view, very easily, an argument could be made that writing that prescription is an act of compassion. That we are, we are um, helping this person die without suffering. But another reasonable person could argue that that is an act of killing. So, here we have a, pos- uh, a livelihood of being a physician and there's this gray area. Am I, am I helping or am I not helping? That's just one example. Or another example might be, say you're a salesperson and it's your job to sell something like software or a business machine of some sort. And you know that what you sell uh, helps people. And you go into people that you're selling to and you could have the um, view that I'm going to sell you something that really helps you. But you might also because of your own needs to make your sales quotas, manipulate that person into buying something they really couldn't afford or really don't need, or that you know there's a better product than the one you're offering, and, and you still sort of manipulate them. So the reason I'm kind of bringing up these, these things is that um, this is not, if, if this was a black and white thing, you do this job, you don't do that job, th- this wouldn't be part of the path. This is a path of, uh, of gray and uncertainty that invites us to look deeply into what we're doing. We may choose to take a kind of job that doesn't seem like livelihood because we know that on the inside, we can make changes that make it better. So it's a compassion practice, partly for ourselves. You know, like, for instance, if I use that uh, idea of the slaughterhouse, uh, imagining what it would do to me to kill hundreds of animals every day. I, I, I don't imagine I, I would be um, an open-hearted person, but it's also a compassion practice for society. How am I impacting society with my work? I think the test that, that I can use with Right Livelihood is, um, does it bring joy? Does doing this bring joy? and and trusting that. Uh, We spend a great deal of time at work. And can we do that with a joyful heart? Uh, Our lives are fleeting and precious. Why would we choose to spend all our time doing something that does not bring us joy, that makes us feel um, depleted or angry? And also, um, can we bring joy to others with our work by bringing our full self with integrity there? Okay, that's the three ethical principles of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So the final three are the meditation or awakening practices of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We talk about these quite a bit because uh, these really are what people think about coming to meditation, these are the things people think about. So our minds are already a little more wrapped around these three. So let's talk about right effort first. Sometimes this is translated as right diligence, and I kind of like that, um, because it implies effort given over time. Diligent effort. So right effort or right diligence is practicing liberation. Wrong effort or wrong diligence is practicing suffering. <coughs> so you can be diligent about practicing things that harm you. <clears throat> That's not right diligence or right effort. Right? It's, it, and, and I think we all know this, we all do these things. With our, with our habit energies that, that we carry that we know aren't serving us. Now, I've been, I've been dealing with this for, for years around having a piece of chocolate after I eat my lunch. I know this does not serve me. And I am, I am practicing wrong effort after lunch every time I go in and reach for the piece of chocolate. Oftentimes, I don't even pay attention to eating it. It's just a habit. And boy, have I been diligent about that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. So um, right effort is the practice of watering seeds. You know, in Buddhist psychology, we talk about seed watering. <coughs> and so what we do is we use right mindfulness to notice what, se- notice what seeds we're watering. And we notice whether they are good seeds or not good seeds. And we water the good ones. And we water the good ones over and over and over again. That's right effort. It's pretty simple. Um, The hard part is knowing which are the good seeds. We have to actually use mindfulness to pay attention to that. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say that uh, the purpose of practice is happiness. Um, And this is a good way to notice whether we're practicing right effort or not. Is our time on the cushion yielding lightness and freedom? If it is, we're probably practicing right effort. If our time on the cushion feels strained and struggling and dark and a lot of work, well, we're obviously practicing effort. But if there's no joy, if there's no happiness, maybe it's not right effort. And we can step back and look and see, Hmm, what am I what am I really doing here? Am I really practicing right effort or not? We can also watch our actions in the world to see if we're practicing right effort. What is our what do our actions tell us about our, our habit energies? You know, again, it's sort of back to that like the action for me of, of eating that chocolate. I can, I can just simply watch that action and I know that I'm not really practicing right effort because this is what I do. It's not what I'm thinking about, it's what I do. So it's a, that's a good guideline for me to watch. Oftentimes we think of effort as requiring some kind of drudgery or work. And I really like, I really like Ty's take on this, that it's, it's happiness that shows us when right effort's in place. It's not drudgery. It's lightness and joy. Okay, right mindfulness. Um, Our root teacher has made an art form out of practicing and teaching right mindfulness. Uh, most everything we do in our practice is related to Right Mindfulness. I don't actually want to say anything about Right Mindfulness tonight. What I would like to do is to uh, guide us in a short meditation, and so we touch it for ourselves. So if you wouldn't mind, if you could just uh, put yourself into a position of, of uh, ease, that reflects your inherent human dignity with an upright posture. I'd like to guide you by giving a phrase for the in-breath and a phrase for the out-breath, and then distill that down to a single word for the in-breath and a single word for the out-breath. And as I do this, I would like to invite you to drop out of your mind and into your body, allowing yourself to simply witness things as they are. So breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. In. Out. Breathing in, I feel my breathing become deep. Breathing out, I feel my breathing. Become slow, deep, slow. mind becomes calm, breathing out, my body is at ease. Calm, ease. Breathing in I smile, breathing out I release, smile, release. Breathing in, I'm aware of the present moment. Breathing out, I know it as a wonderful moment. Present moment, wonderful moment. <coughs> back. So, <coughs> mindfulness is the energy that brings us back to the present moment. And that practice is a way of focusing our energy to bring us back to being aware in the present moment. Right? Mindfulness is a lovely, lovely way to live. To be aware of what's happening in your life. This brief flash of a life that we have is such a joy and one that we habitually miss. So you can read uh, chapter 11 in the Heart of the Buddha's Teaching. Uh, Tai goes into great detail about mindfulness. Basically, he ties the whole practice in to mindfulness. Lovely. Okay, right concentration, we're on the last one. So with mindfulness being the energy that brings us back to awareness, concentration, right concentration, is the ability to focus that energy on a particular object. There's two ways of thinking about a right concentration. There's active concentration and there's selective concentration. So let's talk about active concentration. So active concentration is the concentrated mindfulness on the flow of ever-changing experience. It's like sitting on a riverbank and watching all the different things flow by the bird flies fly through the air, the driftwood, the duck that's landing. You don't stick with anything, you just are mindful of whatever is right in front of you. And often this is um, the way we sit on the cushion. We're following the breath, and we're aware of the breath, and then we notice the thought come up, our concentration focuses on the thought, it releases the thought, we come back to the breath again, our concentration is there. Then we notice the sensation in our knee, and we're there for a moment, and we come back to our breath. It's this flowing sort of mindfulness. We receive life just as it is, without grasping onto anything or pushing anything away. So that is the active concentration. Now the selective concentration picks a single object and stays with that, no matter what. So if we're using selective concentration, we may decide that during this sitting period, I'm going to follow my breath in and out. And so that's where our our concentration lies. We don't allow it to be pulled away. We don't go with the flow of things. We use a kind of concentrated, mindful energy to pay attention to one thing. Both of these are are very um, useful sorts of uh, concentration skill to have. Uh, Sometimes we need to go with the flow completely. When you're in the presence of another person and you want to uh, pay attention to them, then, then you can you can flow with their energy. you can flow with their subjects that you want to talk about. Uh, you can You can go with it and not not worry about losing your mindfulness because your concentration follows. But you also might want want to really deepen your understanding of a particular phenomenon or a particular aspect of your life. And so being able to focus and not be pulled away is also a very important skill to have, an important kind of concentration. One way we use that in our practice is when we do walking meditation in here, we are focusing on on the sensation of our foot touching the ground, and then our foot touching the ground, and now our foot touching the ground, and we're arriving home with each experience of our foot touching the ground. But if we allow our mind to get pulled away from that, then we're, not, we're no longer practicing that kind of selective concentration. Um, so that we could say a lot about this, but um, I, I want to contrast that for what is it like if we don't have concentration? Because I think that's probably what I know pretty well, not being mm-hmm. concentrated, not not having it, maybe you too. Um, if we don't have concentration, our attention just follows our mental habits. The mental habits we've been carrying around all our lives, most of them we built up in childhood. You know, they just We just haven't cast them aside. So our, our concentration will follow that. Um, you remember when I've described this, uh, this path uh, that leads us to suffering, we had sense contact. And right after sense contact, we had a feeling about it. You know, I like that, I don't like that. And then from there, a kind of craving will arise from that feeling. And from that, we would start to really amplify that. It turns into grasping. And from that grasping, then all of a sudden we're creating an I, and we're becoming, and we're the whole nine yards of suffering. It's just fully, fully flying. That's what we'll do without concentration, Concentration allows us to know where we are because we put, applied our mindfulness to the process. But if we're just following our mental habits, what we see, you know, those sense impressions, will be conditioned by our mental habits. We will see what we are habitually seeing. This is really, this is really trivial, but this the first time I really learned this, um, uh, it used to be headlights were all round, right? You know, on cars, headlights were all round. And then at some point, square headlights came out. And, and I had never noticed square headlights before. But I, I noticed these square headlights on a car, and I thought, well, that's really strange. And then everywhere I looked, I saw square headlights. I'd never seen them before. <laughs> in my habit of mind conditioned my sense impressions. I never even saw square headlights before. You know, so it's trivial, but it was the, it was the first time I really understood for, for the reality of that that my my mental habits actually change my perceptions. I thought I was seeing clearly, but I wasn't. So um, if we just let our mind run and we don't have concentration, uh, then what we feel from those sense impressions is also conditioned by our habit energies. I, I brought up this story about my sister and I. Uh, seeing horses. You know, when she sees a horse, it's, ah, cool. And when I see a horse, it's, eh, eh. And, and, you know, that's, that's my habit energy. So right away, um, my feeling is conditioned by that. If all I do is just go with no concentration. So we could just continue to, you know, to to show that each step of the way here is, um, is habit energy conditioned. And that's why we need concentration. Right concentration combined with right mindfulness is one of the most powerful ways to break the cycle of suffering. If we can turn our mindful, concentrated attention to the process of how suffering is arising in us and see it, then we can break it. Just by seeing it, we break it. Just by seeing it. So this is a really important uh, aspect of the of the path uh, to liberation, concentration. We did it. We got all the way to the end. <laughs> we do it for time. Okay. Uh, so we have a we have the last bit of our eight week practice period it comes this Saturday. We have a, a day long day of mindfulness, and it will be here, nine thirty to four and uh, I'm not gonna talk a whole lot about this there. We're going to cap this by being together and, be, and looking at the third step of this three-part way three part way we've been looking. You know, we start at the very beginning we looked at thinking about it with our minds and then taking it into our bodies to experience it ourselves, practice with it, and then the third step being knowing what it is that we know and that's what we'll do at the, at the day of mindfulness we'll spend some time knowing what it is that is that we've seen as a result of this practice period so we'll be doing some journaling so please bring a pencil or pen and a piece of paper or a notepad something that you can write on um yeah. So I think that's uh, all I'd like to say. And and maybe if we could have uh, uh, two sounds of the bell to close, and then we'll have a chance to have some discussion.